So hopefully you did your homework this week. Um, maybe you didn't. Maybe you forgot to do the reading that we've asked you to do. If you did do the reading that we've asked you to do, I can almost guarantee that these three chapters, Exodus 25 and 26 and 27, seem, at first glance, to be the least relevant of any of the chapters in the entire book of Exodus. Even where we were last week, even dealing with slave law, even dealing with other various laws that seem to be totally contextual to an agrarian society, we can draw some concept, some principle out of the text to apply to our lives, something about God's character, something about the way he would have us interact with each other. But what do we do with these blueprints? Right? I don't know about you. It feels to me like I'm reading a long-form Ikea furniture assembly manual. This is what God has put in his Bible. He said, build it this long, and he can tell that we're dense, right? He repeats himself over and over and over again. He could have said, build a lampstand, six arms, make it look like an almond tree. That's probably the email you would have gotten from me if I was asking you to help me design this lampstand. But God goes into almost excruciating detail, doesn't he? Three on one side, three on the other, where they come together, that's where the bulb goes, there's a precise and specific picture in God's head of exactly how this is supposed to look. And so what we want to try to do today is answer the question that we've asked every week when we come into God's law, into his prescription for our lives. And that is, why? Why? And once we know why, what do we do with that why? Can we understand something about God's character? Can we gain insight into who Jesus is from looking at God the Father's character in the Old Testament? If I can, I want you to just kind of table that concept and I want to tell you a story. I think this is going to help draw you in and maybe you'll begin to connect the dots a little bit. When my wife and I had lived in Alaska for about 18 months, uh, COVID arrived. And in the midst of COVID, we made a decision that at the time, uh, maybe logistically, financially, time-wise, didn't make a lot of sense, but we felt led by God as we prayed individually and together as a family to become foster parents. We had begun some training late in 2019. We were able to kind of get across the finish line um, through some Zoom calls and things like that. We did a FaceTime um, interview of our home where we had to carry the phone around and the guy was like, wait, go back, look at that. Does that door have a lock? Is that a good fire extinguisher? But we made it through all that stuff. And within a week of receiving our license, we received our first placement. Our daughter, the little girl who we were able to adopt in September of 2021, Elizabeth, came into our home as a five-year-old almost two years ago. And when she entered into my life, I began a relationship with a person who had a set of circumstances that was totally different from anybody that I've ever interacted with. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't have friends growing up who were foster kids or who were eventually adopted, but I sure didn't know that I did, if I did. I had not lived in a place, I had not endured what she had to endure, and one of the moments that really broke open my understanding of her worldview was the first time that we went on vacation. We had been together as a family for about three months. We were coming up on the 4th of July weekend. We knew that we couldn't leave the state as foster parents because there's all kinds of red tape to make that happen. And so we decided just to go a little bit south of Anchorage down the Seward Highway and stay at a kind of a bed and breakfast together just for a couple of days just to get away and have some fun. And as we began to pack our clothes to leave, our daughter was weeping. We came into her room, she had packed everything that she could possibly fit. Toys, toiletries, clothes, photographs, drawings, bedding, anything that she loved was in her duffel bag, overstuffed to the point that we couldn't zip it up. And we kept saying to her, it's only for two days. We're only going for two days. You really just need like three shirts and maybe one pillow because there's going to be bedding at the B&B. And she's weeping. She wasn't very communicative at that point. She couldn't speak very well yet, kind of as a product of the trauma that she had endured. But eventually, once we were on the road and we're driving to vacation and she's sitting in the back of the car crying and looking over her shoulder at our house, we put together that she had never left a house before unless she was never going back. 
there was no concept of vacation because there had been no concept of permanency. You can't actually leave your home if you don't have a home, right? You can only wander to the next place that you're going to stay long enough to figure out if you're going to make it in that family or not. And for her, her track record had been not so far. She had not been able to stay. She had not stuck, whether with her biological people or among the homes of others who tried to make themselves available as foster parents to her. What I saw in my daughter that day was, I think, a microcosm of the human condition. I believe that. I promise we're going to get back to calyxes and bulbs and lampstands and all of that. It all has to do with each other. But as my daughter looked behind her and wept for what she had lost, unable to see where she was going, I realized she was, in a sense, all of us. Spiritually, we're that way. We're homeless. We don't know what our destination is going to be. If we look far enough back into our collective past, we can remember a time where we were placed in a home. We were put in a spot by a God who designed us and also designed the place we were placed so that they would work perfectly together that we would fit into Eden, that Eden would fit us, that it would provide for our needs, and that in a way it would be an agent and representative of God in our lives, that he would walk with us, that we would be intimate and together and close. But because of our own rebellion, our own desire to do wrong, this is where the foster care analogy falls apart because my daughter being in foster care is no fault of her own, but in our lives collectively as a race, it is our fault, it was our decision to leave that setting. Since then, we have wandered And I believe for you and I, even in 2022, if we can be honest, maybe more so now after a pandemic than ever before, we feel this sense of longing for something, a home. Some of us, we look for this by trying to create that ourselves. Some of us are nest makers. You're this way maybe where even within your home, it's not just that your home is your nest, but you make little nests all around your home. I call those nests uh, messes in my house. But the other person that I live with who I love who's better than me makes nests and it benefits her. Uh, I tend to look for home outside of where I am. I tend to wander. I love airplanes, and I love bus rides, and I love road trips, and I love hiking, and I love camping outside because I I believe that I'm going to have an experience out there that I can't find in here. But it's the same longing that drives me, the same desire to find a place where I fit, the same desire to find a place that fits me. Spiritually, mentally, physically, we are deeply dislocated. This is the state of God's people. What has happened since Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible? God flooded the earth. After that, he began to build a nation of people to restore and rehabilitate humanity by giving some instructions, by making promises, by walking with and being near to his people. This is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God brings his people into their surrogate mother, Egypt, in the life of Jacob. Before Jacob dies, they come into the land of Egypt and they grow there in Egypt for 400 years. Though they are oppressed and misused and we shouldn't be surprised, similar to my daughter's story, Egypt is a very poor foster parent. It cannot replace for the people of God what God himself is to them. And so a time comes where God must set them free and must restore them to himself, must choose to adopt them, not simply allow them to be babysat until a better future arrives. That's the story of the Exodus. It's God breaking his people out from underneath the cruel oversight of bad masters to bring them back to himself and to restore them, not just because biologically they fit one another, but because he's chosen them. That's why the motif of adoption runs through the scriptures. You and I are looking for that. Secularism, okay, opposed to kind of the biblical narrative, would like you to believe that all things are actually getting better all the time. Progress is a word we hear a lot. 
The future is bright. There's something coming up on the horizon. Uh, You may have seen the meme this week that for the seventh year in a row, Elon Musk promised self-driving cars next year. We continue to do that, right? It's coming. We're going to get there. There's another horizon. The day is coming. It's going to be better. There's going to be less for you to worry about, more for you to enjoy, more pleasure, less work. But it never really delivers, right? I mean, how many times can we bite the worm only to feel the hook set and drag us into a future that we didn't really choose for ourselves? In reality, looking forward into our future or back into history, the only movements of human history, the only big moments that really matter are the ones that move us back to where everything began. The lie of our secular age is that progress can only be measured to the right and up, to the right and up on every graph, on every measurement system that we have. We want to be doing better, more profit, more excess, more production, more consumption, always forward, onward into the future, bravely, blindly. Yet in reality, what we're looking for, the thing that we're longing for, is behind us. It's where we came from. And it isn't hard to see if you're really looking. Zoom out with me a little bit. Consider cultures on the, on the face of this planet. Every culture or people group or nation has their own origin myth, their own story of how we came to be. And in every one of these myths, whatever version of humanity is present at their version of the beginning, that first dot on the timeline if you find your way into that origin myth, if you study that creation idea, that story, things are objectively better then. The beginning of time, from the perspective of, of even secular worldviews, is that things were good and they were right and there was some sense of peace for humanity then that's been lost or there was some sense of power for humanity then that's been lost or some sense of innocence or if none of those three things, at least a sense of unity. People were better together, they were more closely knit then than they've been now. Now hear me, these myths are myths. There's only one creation story that's true. But they paint a picture of a world that answers the questions all of our hearts are asking. These myths are meant to try to meet the needs that we still live with in 2022. We ask ourselves, can life be better than this? Can we be better than this? Shouldn't we be better than this? Didn't we used to be better than this? Once before something awful happened that broke everything, Our idealized mythological origin stories hint at what is true, but it's in our Bibles that we get the whole story. And we get it straight from God himself, God who created us personally. To borrow some 2022 language, we were perfectly fabricated and programmed by God to do one thing, to serve and to worship. And not only were we built to do that, a place was built for us where we fit a home for us. But what did we do? We tried to reprogram ourselves. We wanted greater autonomy, we wanted less subservience, believing somehow the lie that we would be happier if we were in charge. And yet, we have neither the mental, spiritual, or physical ability to actually affect the created order in the slightest. We tried to wrestle the steering wheel out of God's hands, but we can't do anything with it. We're unable to actually affect change on our own, and our most ancient ancestors, the first man, the first woman, They felt the loss of their home. They felt what we feel, but they felt it distinctly, acutely, sharply when they found themselves thrown out of that garden and banned from re-entry just east of where God had placed them on the face of the planet. In Genesis chapter 3, we get an account of that story. God says this about how things went. This is verses 23 and 24. He says, The Lord God sent him, the man, out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, drove him out. It's not a nice way to be uh, removed. And at at the the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, an angel, and he gave him a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
we find in this origin story maybe some of the initial movement that led to the symptoms that we feel today. If we feel lost, if we feel dislocated, if we feel that all we're doing is moving from place to place, never finding our home, maybe the origin of that is the first movement of humanity on the earth. The first time anybody moved anywhere, it was out and away from God. One chapter later, Cain killed his brother Abel, and to quote chapter 4 of Exodus, he went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of wandering. That's what nod means, the Hebrew word nod, which is what that land is named after. Wandering, what does wandering imply? That you're never home. More than that, it's even further east of the place where Adam and Eve had landed after being cast out of the garden. Again, the second movement of humanity on the earth, out and away from God. This is our trajectory. This is our natural movement, our destiny in a world mangled by sin. Though we know we are not home, we choose generation after generation to move farther out and farther away from where we are meant to be. Ironically, all that time running in the name of finding what we're running from. So how do we go back? Well, if the story of humankind was a Disney movie, the way it would go is we would find out that there is uh, invisible ink written on the back of the Ten Commandments, right? And there would be a young Jewish man named Nicodemus Cage, and he would have to go and steal the Ten Commandments, flip them over. No, that's not how it goes. But there is a map. Did you know that? Seriously, there's a real map in your Bible that leads us back to Eden, that draws us and invites us into the place that we were banned from because of our sin. And that map is the blueprints that I just read to you in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. When God gives his people the sanctuary, when he gives them the tabernacle, there is imagery all over this tabernacle that is completely lost on you and I. It feels like some kind of, it's like reading a magazine from the 70s. Just the, the, the way that people do what they do, the art, the motifs that appear, none of it lands, none of it clicks for us. It feels totally removed from our experience. So what I want to do is I want to try to draw out to you the parallels, that what I think is very clear imagery between what God commands his people to do when they create the tabernacle and how he built Eden originally. And then I think what you'll see is though we live outside of the home that God intended for us, there is a way back. There's always been a map back to him. And ultimately, in Jesus, this is where we'll land today, the way is open to us. So, I want to reread to you Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. Hear these things. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take for me a contribution, an offering. Gather together some of the things that they have, is what God is saying. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then God is not saying, these are the kinds of things you're going to receive. He says, this is what the people will give. Moses, I'm telling you to ask for a thing that I can guarantee God's people are going to bring to you. They're going to give to you. It will be gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, Goat skins, which I mentioned earlier, can also be interpreted as porpoise skins. Uh, Something waterproof is the idea here. God's going to use that layer to keep the rain out of his tabernacle. There would be acacia wood, which is very light but very strong, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breastpiece, which we'll hear about next week when we get to chapter 28. Now, a question we should be asking ourselves at this point, if we're dialed into the narrative of Exodus at all, is where did these people who were in slavery three months ago, get all of this nice stuff, right? I mean, how do they, they have gold? If they have gold, why don't they just start a new country where they are? If they have a lot of gold, why don't they just sell their gold and they can have land and they can have sheep and they can have a house and be happy? Where'd they get this stuff? 
Is there some unknown series of Israeli pirates operating as we read between the lines in these chapters? No. I'm going to throw it back to Exodus 3 and then again Exodus 11. I don't have time to read it to you today, but in Exodus 3, when God came to Moses at, at the rock of Horeb, at the side of Mount Sinai in the burning bush, he told Moses, when the people are set free, because he guaranteed it way before the plagues came, when the people are set free, you're going to say to the Egyptians, please give us whatever you have, and they will. And you will plunder them. That's the word that God uses. Then in Exodus 11, it happens, just like God said it would. God's people, who are still slaves at this point, between plagues 9 and 10, go to their slave masters and say, would you please give us gold and silver and scarlet thread and purple thread and blue thread and ram's skins and onyx stones and stones for setting, all the things that God lists here, they ask for. And whether the people of Egypt are moved by God's holiness or they're just trying to pay these Israelites off to leave and never come back and never bring the curses of this God on them again, we don't know, but they pay, they pay up. What that tells you and I is that God has been planning for this sanctuary. Don't, don't miss the significance of this. He's been planning for this sanctuary, this tabernacle, at least as long as he has planned for the Exodus, which I would argue has been forever. God has known from the time that Genesis 3 happened and he had to kick Adam and Eve out because of their sin that he would eventually bring Eden back to them. But even then, it's just a picture. Even then, it points us ahead. So verse 8, he says, Let them make for me a tabernacle or a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. It's a map. A map showing us how to get back what we lost. The way to return to life in God's presence. That's the key. That's the point of all of this. Don't get stuck in the weeds of how sacrifices are performed and what they mean and what size everything is and why it's that size. You can study that on your own, certainly, and it's interesting and oftentimes there's meaning there. But the point is that God will be with his people, that he will live right literally in the middle of them with what they're doing. That God's people again will live with the author of life and that they'll have a relationship with the only person who loves them totally, who loves them completely, who upholds their lives. So let's walk through it a little bit. First is the list of materials. This is a throwback to what's going on in the Garden of Eden. The list that we get in verses three through seven begins with gold and ends with onyx. If you were to go back to Genesis 2, if you have a second Bible, I guess you can do that today if you want to, but you would see the description of Eden is very similar. Eden is described as a land that is good. The gold of that land is good. That's the first thing listed, that there's delium and that onyx stone is there. God will use this pattern of gold to onyx with various things in between as an indicator to his people that he has chosen a land or a place for them that they should put roots down. Second, In verses 31 through 39 of Exodus 25, we get the description of the lampstand. You heard me read that uh, a few minutes ago. But in case you forgot what I said or you had already tuned it out because you thought it was boring, this lampstand sits in the middle of the tabernacle and it provides light. Later when God uh, tells the priests what to do, what their jobs are going to be in just a few chapters, he explains to them every single night when the caravan stops, there's a few nights when they're at war or people are chasing them where they travel through the night, but probably 340 nights a year, As soon as the tabernacle is set up, which is the job of the priest, the lampstand gets put together, set in the middle, and it's burning all night long. Now, in a land with no light pollution, something like a lampstand with six oil-based flames burning is not only a glimmer of hope, but it's a great comfort in the darkness. It's the only nightlight in the whole camp. And it's God indicating to his people that this thing, this lampstand that's designed to look just like a tree is him continuing to keep his presence in their midst. It's a throwback for us to the tree of life in the very center of the Garden of Eden. 
Third, in the Genesis 1 creation account, God speaks seven times. And each of those seven times when he speaks, something happens. Something is made. It's created in response to his words. In Exodus 25 through 31, Yahweh speaks seven times to Moses. And each of those seven times that he speaks to Moses, he communicates what the Israelites will create that will mirror and copy what God put together in creation. Fourth, Adam was, in a sense, in the Garden of Eden, the priest of Eden. He was the intermediary, the intercessor, the go-between for all of creation and God, given God's image, spiritually and maybe physically, but certainly the spiritual imprint of God, the intelligence, the knowledge, the memory to be able to name and care for all of the living creatures, plants and animals both. He represented God to creation, but he also represented creation to God, serving and living as God's image bearer and also the beloved pinnacle of creation. In Genesis 2.15, God explains Adam's purpose as, quote, to work the land and to keep the land. So to draw food and life out of it, but also to protect and care for it at the same time. That language specifically, to work the land and keep it, only shows up in one other place in the Bible, the whole Bible. And where it appears is in the extended job description of the priests of this tabernacle. We don't get it in Exodus. We have to wait until Numbers, your favorite book of the Bible. In Numbers 3, 8, and 18, God uses the exact same language to describe not the men who work in the field, the giant tribes of Israel that are totally agrarian uh, farmers. No, he uses it to describe the priests. That as the priests intercede for God's people in the tabernacle, the work that they are doing is they are working the land and keeping it in God's perspective. In a way, they themselves become a new Adam, a new pinnacle of creation, meant to represent God to creation and represent creation back to God. The clearest part of the map back home is God's presence. With the assembly of the tabernacle, God is back among his people. He will dwell among them, according to verse 8, his words. In other words, it means that their lives are going to revolve around him again. He even went so far as to design the tabernacle to be built of rings and poles, a system that allows it to be packed up and moved with the people. Now that's relevant now because they're on their way to the promised land, but if you were to ask any of the Israelites in Exodus 25 how much longer they're going to be on the road, they would say maybe a couple of months. It's not very far until we get to Canaan, we just have one more river to cross and then we'll be there, and then their assumption would be either the tabernacle is set up permanently or that God would give them a plan for a new permanent location for his presence to dwell in their midst. What they don't know is what God does know, that there's another 40 years of wandering coming for them because of the rebellion in their own hearts, that at the moment when they could have walked triumphantly into the land of promise, and this is still months ahead of where they are now, that instead they'll follow their fear, they'll follow their feelings, and they'll walk away from God and try to protect and preserve themselves. Is it not Amazing Is it not so indicative of how sharp God's sovereignty is that he would anticipate even his journey with the rebellion of his own people, this 40 years of penalty into the way that he sets this, this tabernacle up? It's mobile because it's going to need to be mobile for 40 more years, and his people could have never anticipated that. They would not have prescribed it that way, and yet he fully intends to travel that journey with them to participate in their legal sentence with them by continuing to dwell in their midst, even though they've rebelled. The tabernacle is, in a way, a map back to Eden. But as New Testament believers, what do we do with this law? We've said it every week. We listen to it. 
We, we understand it, we study it, we allow it to counsel our lives, but we don't submit to it, and so we can't expect the fulfillment of any of these laws to appear in the midst of their own prescription. When God gives them, he's not telling us the big point. We're not at the finish line yet. This is the beginning of the race for God's people. We find the fulfillment of these laws, even the, the dimensions of the ark, the dimensions of the lampstand, the dimensions of the table, these things also point us toward Jesus. Because the mission of the church and the mission of Jesus is reconciliation, and so the tabernacle is also a map to where we are going. If we take just those three items, the ark, the table, and the lamp, these are things that turn God's place of worship into a house. They bring a sense of domestication into play, and they encourage us to participate in the life of God in the same way that we would a friend or someone who'd invited us over to their home. We'll start with the ark. The ark tells us that we may come into God's kingdom by submitting to his rule. It shares its physical dimensions with the footstool of ancient Near Eastern kings. And the reason an ancient Near Eastern king needs a footstool is because they would often spend 10 plus hours a day sitting in their throne room listening to the complaints and legal cases of their people, the people of their nation who came under their rule. What God is communicating by building an ark that is itself representative of the footstool of him, the king of heaven, is that we are invited into his rule under his law by submitting to him and giving our lives back to him, reversing the rebellion of Eden so many hundreds of years before. The table that God designs for the tabernacle is an invitation for us to come and eat with Yahweh. If you were a part of our most recent prayer night, you'll remember that we spent some time analyzing the presence of a shared meal throughout scripture in the culmination of the wedding feast of the Lamb at the second coming of Christ. This is itself a link in that chain. God continues to present the motif of a shared meal as an invitation to us to come into his life and to know him personally. The table, even in 2022, is where we share food and friendship. It may not be the dining room table as much as the coffee table in the living room in front of the TV these days for many of us, but we still sit together when it's time to eat. We're still near one another. Our bodies are physically close. We have proximity. Things tend to come out. Things tend to come up that we might not share with other people. And it's that sense of intimacy that's represented by the table of God. Better than any table you and I have ever sat at, God's table stays set all the time. A few chapters later, when God explains the bread of the presence, he tells his priests that once a week they must replace the loaves of bread on the table, that there will always be 12 loaves of bread that will sit on the table 24-7 as long as that tabernacle is set up. Why 12? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel, and what God is saying to his people is all of you are always welcome at my table. There will always be food for you here. The tabernacle's lamp never went out as long as camp was made. And that meant that there was always a light to lead God's people, a beacon of hope, and should they wake up in the darkness panicked, haunted by nightmares or memories of slavery in Egypt, all they had to do was turn their head, and there was God's light reminding them. They're not there anymore, they're here with him. He would sustain them, he would hold them up. Now each of those things is nice and good, but they find their culmination in the person of Jesus. This is the key for us as New Testament believers to understand and unlock the meaning and significance of these verses. The tabernacle as a whole points us to Jesus. When John decided to announce to the world that God had arrived on the scene in John chapter 1, he says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and literally pitched his tent among us. That is much more significant if you and I understand that God first pitched his tent in Exodus. Instead of waiting for his people to make their way back to him, he comes to them. He lives among them. He dwells in their midst. 
Literally, in John 1.14, Jesus tabernacled. That's the word used. Jesus is the fulfillment of the ark because he was judged for us on our behalf, and he judged rightly was restored to life for us. He's the fulfillment of the table. He said so in John 6.35. That reads that Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, that whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What better picture could Jesus think of than that ancient table that at that point had lived in the temple for a very long time because the temple was the permanent version of the tabernacle after God established his people in Israel. But that there was always bread there and Jesus says, you come to me and you'll never be hungry. There will never even be a waiting period between meals. I will sustain, I will nourish your soul 24-7, 365. Through Jesus, with Jesus, we together now eat in the presence of God and Jesus is the fulfillment of the lamp. In John chapter eight, Jesus said that his light would shine for the sake of the whole world that that was part of his purpose, to illuminate the thinking and the philosophies of mankind so that we would follow him. Follow him where? He's leading us somewhere. He's bringing us back home. That's why the map of the tabernacle works, is it gets us to Jesus, and he gets us the rest of the way. Even the best-intentioned among us cannot attain the kingdom of heaven without Jesus' help. As much good as obedience to his law, acknowledgement of his substitution for us, even trusting him to meet our physical needs, as good as these things are, they are not on their own what we need. These things come after the thing that we need. Because the way home is still barred to those who do a lot in Jesus' name but never know him. The way home is still closed to those who understand and agree that what he said is true without ever having actually placed the weight of their life in his hands. In order for the tabernacle, the lampstand, the ark, and the table to have any real meaning, any real bearing on the actual lives that we actually live, full of our actual choices, we have to somehow enter into God's presence. And this is where the connection between the tabernacle and Eden ends. Because there's one more thing in the tabernacle that doesn't point us to Eden. It points us to something else, and it's the altar. In order for Eden to be Eden, in order for us to be with God and to dwell with him, there didn't need to be sacrifices. We lived in perfect unity with him. We had a deep and real relationship, totally free, to the point that our physical bodies were naked and we were never worried about that because we lived without shame. We had nothing to be ashamed of. And yet, an angel now stands and bars the way. If you were to dig more deeply into these chapters, you would see that when God prescribes how the curtains of the temple are meant to be made, he demands that his people weave images of cherubim into those curtains. What does a cherubim represent? It is the angel standing at the gates of Eden, refusing all entry. These curtains hang first in the tabernacle and then in the temple, reminding God's people as close as they may get to that holiest of holy places, as near as they may get to that home that they've longed for, there is still a barrier in play that keeps them out. And that is what the altar is for. The altar is where Jesus goes from a friend inviting us over for some fun to a sacrifice made in our place to open the way home for us. If you were to move to the end of any of the four Gospels, you would read an account of Jesus' crucifixion. And in the majority of those, there's a moment that's easy to overlook for those of us who were not raised as Jewish people who don't know the meaning and significance. We've never stood in front of that curtain and hoped and prayed that a day would come where we would be in God's presence, not just near it. There's a moment of immense significance to us when the same curtains that God designs for his people in Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, in these chapters, those same curtains are torn all the way in half. The moment that Jesus 
dies. The moment that the sacrifice is made on the altar once and for all, the barrier, the cherubim, the thing that stands between you and God, it's removed. That's the peace that gets us where we're going. That's the only way this map can be effective for you and I. If all it does is call us back to days of yore, a time long past, a time that feels like mythology because the human experience of those who lived in Eden is so far removed from the suffering that you and I deal with. If that's all it does, then it's depressing. It isn't helpful. It's God mocking us for our mistake, inviting us into a place where we can never truly fit. But this is not God's character. God's character is to provide the way in, even the orientation of the tabernacle itself. The only wall that's open faces east. Where have God's people been? They've been east of Eden. Again and again and again, they move away, out and away. And yet here God, even in his dwelling place, opens the door to them and says, you can come back. I want you to come back. I want to be among you. The new path that we must walk in order for this tabernacle to have any meaning in our lives, the path of Jesus was explained by him toward the end of his life, the night before he died in John 14. Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms. In my father's house, his tabernacle, his dwelling place, there's many rooms, there's rooms for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. Excuse me, would I have said to you that I go to prepare a place for you? to get a place ready for you to arrive at. And if I do go, and if I do prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will bring you to myself. That where I am, you will be. Tabernacle. Eden, again, restored. Relationship, back together. Life on life. This has been the point. This is always the point. But here is how you know the way, he says. You know the way to where I'm going But do they know the way? They don't think that they do. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know. The disciples were not studying Exodus 25 that morning, okay? They're not making the immediate connections that hopefully you and I are beginning to draw right now. Thomas says, we don't know. We have no idea where you're headed. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, it's me. You know the way because you know me. I am the truth. I'm the life. It begs the question, what life, what truth, the one you've been looking for, the thing you've been wandering around life hoping that you'll stumble into, it's me. I'm here, and I'm going to leave for a little while because even this version of me here with you in this presence, this is not the end of the story. We're going back to Eden. If you know how the Bible ends, it ends the way that it started, in a garden. That's the new earth. The new earth is essentially a global city that starts and ends with a river that flows out from underneath the same tree that was in the middle of the garden. All of the motifs of the tabernacle drawn from Eden also point us forward to where we're going. But none of that really matters if we don't have Jesus. The beauty of the streets, the significance of loved ones lost, whatever visual image you have in your head of heaven, it's not enough if Christ isn't there with you. It's not enough if your eyes are not on him, if your life is not consumed by him because he is the way home. He is what the altar foreshadows. He is the way because he is the sacrifice. Jesus prepared our new place in our eternal home with God by dying our death and when he did it, that final barrier between God and man, what we call sin, symbolized by those blue and red and purple curtains, they tore from top to bottom. My friends, if you can sense that you are deeply dislocated, you've been given a map. And that map 
points you to a person, and that person is the way home. He is the guide sent to you to teach you how to have life and life abundantly, life that has qualities of eternity all around and in it. That's what's on the table for you today. Not a religious system, not a way to self-improve, not another version of how to find a people group and just fit in by learning their language and doing all the stuff that they do. This is about whether or not you want to find the thing you're looking for. If you do, he's here. He's ready. The way is open. He's paid the price. The altar did its job. If you simply try to get back to Eden, this is the pursuit of modernity. This is the pursuit of our secular age, to get to a place where everything is better. This is the lure dangled in front of our faces every new year about how things are going to be better and things will only improve. If you're looking for that, you're looking for the right thing, but you're looking in the wrong place. You'll only find it by entering into Jesus. And if you will, just try to visualize standing in that tabernacle the new house of God situated among the houses of his people and see Jesus climb onto that altar for you, the only sacrifice who ever willingly went to the altar. He died in your place. And if you'll listen, you'll hear that curtain tear just a few feet away from where you're standing. Finally, access to God open to you through Christ. The way is open. So come home. Let me pray for you. Father, the significance of this gathering is not lost on me. I hope it's not lost on us, God. I hope today that we can really sense whether it's new information for us or maybe a recent experience of your majesty or your care in our lives, God, maybe some spiritual sense of, of presence that you've been near to us, that you've brought comfort or peace that, that are totally run counter to our circumstances, the chaos, the panic that we should be living with, God. Whatever it is, would you remind us that this is who you've always been, would you give us the strength to reject our idols, whether they're religious or not? And would you allow us to just simply see that boiled down at its finest point, God, the razor's edge of your word and redemptive history and the work of Jesus and your tabernacle and really all of time is to be with you again. Challenge us, God, today. If we have done many things in your name, yet we do not know you. Challenge us today, God, if Decades ago, we were near to you, yet instead of that now, some deep ache or some old pain has caused us to try to run, to move out and away from your presence. I pray, God, that you would draw us in, that if this church could have any legacy in this city, it would be that it's a place where the kingdom of heaven has come near, that we might enter in. We love you, God. Would you saturate our lives and even these coming minutes with your mercy, with your presence, that we would know you, God, to build our faith we want to trust you more. We want to give you all of our lives every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.